And let me uh, welcome you to First Presbyterian Church of Boulder on this fine, beautiful Sunday morning. Um, I hope that uh, today can be a happy Father's Day for you, recognizing that there is no earthly father that's perfect. Um, I at one time read that we all, for our whole lives, have daddy issues. <laughs> and yet we've come to gather around the one who is perfect and worthy of all our praise. And every man, indeed every woman in our life, is just a shadow compared to the glory of what he can offer us when we decide to rest in his grace and power and shaping in our lives. So, um, glad you're here on this beautiful Sunday morning. Uh, before I start today's sermon, I just want to take um, just a little bit of a pastoral moment of privilege. Father's Day last year, 2018, in a sermon, in the context of a sermon, I shared that the last year of my uh, life, my spiritual life, had been a very difficult year. Where for whatever reason, um, I just uh, stopped having a sense of the Lord's presence or pleasure in my life. And it was, it was a confusing time for me. Uh, maybe all the more because of the work that I get to do with you and up here and in our lives together. It was, uh, it was a very hard year. And um, I was reminded of that again uh, just this week, uh, actually, as I, I got the news about um, Jim Bergen at Flatirons. I don't know if you've uh, heard this news or if you have friends who worship there, um, but uh, Jim's elders at his church put him on an immediate six-month sabbatical last week because he's exhausted and uh, completely overwhelmed and probably has worked himself too hard. There's probably some other story or some additional stories behind all that that we're just going to uh, pray about, but let the story that he shared with us be the story that we, um, that we also know. But it reminded me in this sort of interesting way of the year that I had last year and uh, the kinds of sort of unique stresses that this role has. Every job has unique stress. Mine is... Uh, not any more than any of yours, but it is unique. Maybe in part because the, the, my spiritual life and my character and my job performance and my organizational leadership and even my husbanding and parenting are all sort of wrapped up together in this thing we are all part of on a regular basis. And Jim has hit a spot where his elders have said, you need to take a break. So we're going to pray for Flatirons in a minute here. I wanted you to know that over this last year, the Lord has, again, for reasons not clear to me, been really gracious to me this year and uh, certainly um, have continued to seek Him out. I think that's the one thing I would want to tell you. When you go through these moments where you feel like there's a, more than just a stillness, but a silence from the Lord, don't just jump over to some other shallow puddle, but dive deeper into what you know draws you closer to the Lord. Don't spend less time in prayer, but more time. Don't set Scripture aside for a while, but spend more time in it. And I can tell you uh, that's been a blessing to me, at least um, over this last year. Um, my elders are, our elders, actually, are sending me on a sabbatical next year. Uh, not forced and not immediate. Praise the Lord for that. Um, and we'll have a chance to talk more about that, um, you know, uh, in the months to come. That'll be this 
Sunday right after Easter 2020, but I'm not counting the Sundays at all. <laughs> Many of our friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, and the pastoral team and staff at Flatirons um, are in a bit of a tumult right now. So why don't we pray for them and also for this preached word before we go any further. Let's unite our hearts in prayer. Father, we thank you for our brothers and sisters across the globe and even in close here in Boulder County. And today, because of some of the news that's been shared over this last week at Flatirons, we, we hold that church up to you. Lord, it is your constant declaration in your word that you love your church like a groom loves a bride. So we pray, Lord, especially uh, right now that um, you would let the people of Flatirons know how deeply you love them. And we pray for this period of rest and renewal for Jim Bergen. We pray that truly, Lord, he would come back and find his heart and soul refreshed, that his imagination is anchored to the Word of God, that his character reflects the truth of the Holy Spirit which resides in him. Lord, would you allow this time to be a time where there's truly space to listen to you and to receive good counsel? We pray blessing on that church. Lord, we also pray a blessing on our own. Lord, we're in the middle of this series on the book of Revelation. And for many, it is a hard book. For me, it is a hard book. But we pray, Lord, that you would continue to nourish us and feed us as we dive into this part of the Scriptures. Would you help us to see that there is something that revealed just behind the veil, just on the other side? Would help us to see the happenings around us and in our own hearts with your eyes. Peel back the curtain. Move our hearts. In fact, as it says in Ephesians, would you open the eyes of our hearts that we might see you? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be very pleasing and acceptable in your sight. For you are our Lord, our rock, and our redeemer. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. All right, let me encourage you to continue to pray for Flatirons, especially as they learn how to get their feet under them in this situation. We are on, believe it or not, week eight of this series on Revelation that we've been calling Seed to City. And we've been calling it that because there's this image of the garden in Genesis. And what we see is sort of the long arc of God's plan as he, he wants to gather all of his people and all the beauty of his intent into, uh, into a city of God at the very end of Revelation. And we're about, in Revelation, just a little bit over halfway through. We are in Genesis chapter, or Revelation, pardon me, chapter 13. And uh, it's, kind of a, it's kind of a hairy picture today. What we've been saying to you is there's almost always this pattern of um, persecution and of trial, but eventually of, of victory, we're not going to get to the victory today. It comes right at the very beginning of chapter 14. But before we do that, I want to sort of give you another way to understand what, what is Revelation? Why is it so weird to us? And Revelation oftentimes is this interesting sort of combination of, of actual sort of political reality, what's happening right there, and also a spiritual reality. Sometimes they actually end up merging. 
I was on a walk with uh, Rich Bledsoe, who's a uh, um, chaplain in our church. Right now, teaching a class on Revelation and uh, doing a, a really excellent job. And on a walk, he reminded me that one of the ways we can understand what really Revelation is is by thinking about political cartoons uh, in our own era. So I want you to imagine, if all you could do, if all you had was this picture, how would you describe this? Go ahead and show this first one, if you would, please. It's a French, a small French person, maybe like Napoleon, and a British general, slicing up the world. Imagine the political comment that this made. If you, all you could do was say, I saw this picture of these two giant men with swords and feathers coming out of their heads. And in each hand there was a knife and a fork, and they were slicing up the world to gorge on it. Next one. This is from World War II. The bottom there says, you can make this kind of ammunition. And it's an encouragement to, uh, for people to do gardens, you know, victory gardens in their own homes and on their own properties if they have them. Imagine what you would have to write if you just saw that as an image. I saw giant world-crushing vegetables descending at the speed of light and destroying a box that had holes in it. <laughs> You'd have to know something of the imagery for Revelation to make sense, right? Here's another one. This is uh, just uh, from just last year. And I'm not making a political statement except just to say, what would you have to know about our culture for that to make sense? Uh-huh. Right? You'd have to know about this a movie based on a Stephen King book. You'd have to know who Stevie is in this case, why his re-arrival is uh, so sort of interesting and maybe scary. Or here's another one. Two pigs being giant pigs being lifted up by an eagle with a shield. And if you didn't know anything at all that one of them said record spin and the other one said national debt, and one pig said, this is awesome. And the other one said, there's no telling how high we can go. All you had was the imagery. You can imagine how someone a thousand years from now might have no idea what that image is about. Right? That is part of the challenge as we come to seek and understand what Revelation is trying to say to us. Because it's written in a context where there is a political reality. There are things that are actually happening right there that they can understand and need to hear from the Word of God as they live right there where they live. So we're going to read this, uh, the first 10 verses, and then we're going to come back and try to describe it before we read the the back half of this. And, And before we do that, it might be most helpful if I just say just a couple words about the end of chapter 12. Actually, all of chapter 12, one of the primary characters in chapter 12 was a dragon. And that dragon was a Satan. And that dragon was antagonistic and seemingly um, bent on violence and destruction, first of the, um, first of the baby child born to the woman, and, and, and then to heaven itself. And then once he's been cast to earth, he's bent on pursuing God's people. 
and ends in this place where he's standing right there on the shores between the water and the land. And let's read. Shall we? Chapter 13, starting at verse 1. We're going to do just verse 1 through 10. And that dragon, the Satan, stood on the shore of the sea. And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns, seven heads, with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head had a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast, and they asked, who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, every people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all those whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain, the Lamb who, pardon me, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. So there's both a political and a spiritual reality here. I'll sort of walk you through some of the things we just saw, sort of just even on the political end, and some of the imagery that maybe we've seen before that maybe you've forgotten or you weren't here when we talked through some of these things already. So the first thing you need to know is, let's just take a little look at this map. So that yellow is where all the seven churches were that received this revelation, those opening letters from John as a vision from Jesus, okay? And that red dot up in the left-hand corner is Rome. How do you suppose Roman powers, authorities, executives, princes, soldiers, officers, how did they get to where the yellow circle is? by boat. And so when it says, we have seen this giant, piece, this giant beast come right from the sea, it's talking about the political reality of, of Rome coming and, and stepping into their world, their territory in a forceful way, bent on evil. Now what's interesting about that is the image that this beast is given besides the fact that it comes from the sea. It's it's almost impossible to draw. 
If you've ever seen Napoleon Dynamite, his favorite animal, it's a liger. Right? Tiger, lion. This is like a liger up or there. Okay? It's impossible to draw. And it comes actually from this imagery from Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 says there's going to be this, essentially this series of empires. They're going to come one right after the other. And the last one's not even going to even look like a creature. It's going to be so fierce. John takes that imagery and he says, they're all bound up now, both in Rome and what God says is going to happen to his church. This is now not just about empires kind of coming, but also what actually does an empire do? It seeks to use its power to diminish others. It uses its power to to subjugate and to enslave the people who are around it. This is the work of the devil. See, the devil has tried violence and, and is now going to try something, as it says, something very, very different. It's going to give this, um, this dragon is going to be given, given power to the beast to blaspheme God, to set up another system of worship. Say, oh yeah, there's not just the throne and all the people gathered around the throne. There's, there's also this, this beast and a whole bunch of all the people of every tribe and language and type are also going to be circled up here. I'm not going to just try violence, the dragon says. I, I'm going to try actually trickery, idolatry. I'm going to try to use my voice and my words to, to pull people away from worship of the Lamb and into the circle of blasphemy. I'm going to use all my powers in that way. It'll look like and feel like heavenly worship. And it's going to be this way for 42 months. That's all. Do you remember what we said that number means? 42 months. Three and a half years, time, times, and half a time, 1,260 days. They're all the same. And they all represent the, the whole time of the church until the Lord's return. So how long then is the dragon going to use empire and the beast to try to speak blasphemy and pull people away from the Lord until his return? It's not a promise just three and a half year period. It's not a prophecy in that way. It's not um, a news clipping where we try to figure out who the Antichrist is. It's how the forces of the devil are going to be arrayed against God's people for all time until Christ comes again. We're living in those side, those 42 months somewhere in um, God's plan for history. And this is something that we haven't talked about, but um, then John says, in light of that, in light of that empire and all the empires that it represents in, in the future, the church is going to suffer. It's been a major theme that we've not yet found a way to really fully explore. But Revelation is really clear. These political cartoons are super clear. The dragon is going to try to put his feet on the neck of God's people. 
And sometimes that will mean captivity. Sometimes, like our brothers and sisters around the globe, even just in this last month, it's going to be dying by the sword. And then this part of Revelation 13 ends with this idea that what, what then should we do? It will require patience and endurance, not armor and a sword. The way that we witness in the face of empire is to not use the empire's tools. The way we witness as part of God's people, as those who find their name in the rule book of the, of the book of life, is that in the face of the possibility of captivity, of even dying by the sword, of, of bowing down to a fake and false God, is patience and endurance. That's what God calls from His people as a faithful witness of the slain Lamb of God. And now there's a second beast. Oh, wait, there's more. Can we go to the map for a second? So in just a second, before we go any further, I want to point out a couple things to you that will help us read the second half. Once Rome was there in Asia, throughout all these cities, there started to be an extraordinary cult of Caesar. A massive developed cult of Caesar. Um, tiny little gods and shrines in all kinds of places. You were really, the, the worship of the empire was just everywhere. Couldn't get away from it. And those who were Christians, what they realized actually is, is, is uh, even their own people, their own cities, their, um, their own way of life, there, there were people who were there who were using the beast for their own power. They'd started just sort of like they'd been blessed by the beast and now they were using the beast's power for their own power. So in a second, we're going to see this picture of this beast who's also sort of rised up from the soil. And politically speaking, those who heard this would have understood that it was the, it was the priests and the local governments and um, all of the taxes that went to sort of create and keep this Roman cult going on. Okay? And the local temples, they used smoke, literal smoke and mirrors to create the effect of wanting to move the heart. Literal smoke and mirrors. You'll hear that too. Okay? And what was so hard about it being a Christian is you rejected all that. And there was a deep fight about whether or not you could even be Roman if you were going to reject all of the Roman cults. No other religion really did that except for the Jewish faith, and this tiny little sect of people called Christians. Everyone else sort of just absorbed it into whatever else they already had going on. So let's just read now 11 through 17, and then we're going to talk about verse 18 all by itself. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. Okay, let's stop there. What does a lamb usually represent in Revelation? Jesus. 
something's going to come that looks like it has the power to save. It's going to look attractive to us. For 42 months, there's always going to be something that's going to be pulling us away from worshiping the true lamb and worshiping a substitute, a false lamb. And guess what? He still has a voice like a dragon. He still lies. It doesn't mean he's loud and he grumbles. It means he lies. And it exercised all the authority of the first beef on its behalf. Do you hear that? All the exercise of the beast is now in this second beast. And they both are exercising the authority they've been given by the Satan. And it made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose fatal wound had been healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to, be, to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs, it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beef, beast. It deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. We'll talk about the next chapter or verse in just a second. So I want you to notice what's happening there. The devil is, is trying a new tactic. Now there's two degrees of separation from him to our dist- spiritual distraction. So it's not so obvious. It requires a kind of wisdom and insight. And it looks like a lamb, looks good, but what it says still are lies. And it pushes the people to idolatry. Do you sometimes feel pushed to idolatry? We all are. If you miss it, it's because it's two degrees away from obvious. It's worth thinking about how we all step into forms of idolatry. But here, they use sort of tricks and fine-sounding words. And since we are so prone to worship, we, we just worship whatever seems obvious and most attractive to us, sometimes right in front of us. And this is the third time, then, we see that some part of um, this beast has um, a wound. It looks like it was caused death, but is now brought to life. And it's probably helpful for you to know, from a political standpoint, uh, Nero had recently committed suicide. Self-inflicted wound. But because he was so evil, there was this growing story that he still lived walking the earth to continue to do that evil. So what they're referencing is this sort of ongoing myth that, that Nero and those who are evil like him continue to sort of wander the earth and do their work. And what were you supposed to do? Well, you're supposed to worship in the cult. 
And around this time, it started becoming a pretty big deal. Worship had become, as we'll say in a couple minutes, had uh, sort of become like uh, the decision point. And if you're going to go into the market, if you're going to go into Target, if you're going to go into Safeway, if you're going to go into any sort of marketplace to do any sort of business to buy food or clothing, eggs, whatever you had to do, you, before you were allowed to enter in, there was a little shrine there and you had to worship at it. And if you worshiped at it, you received the mark. So everyone in the market knew you could purchase. But if you had received the mark, that means you had also rejected the lamb and were living a life of idolatry. This is going to take wisdom for us. If you take a mark, you get to be in the market. If you take part in the cult, you get to be in the culture. That's what's happening here. The dragon and the beast from the sea and the beast from the land have, have orchestrated in such a way where you have no option but to reject Jesus if you're going to live. Now we face a version of that almost every, almost every week at least. Someone makes some comment, something comes up in the news, and we decide to sort of roll over. So what's happening here is our own version that we don't see because it's two degrees of separation from the dragon. We're living our own version, our own times of the 42 months of Revelation 13. And then finally we get to, when it comes to that mark, we get to this final little uh, verse here. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beasts, for it is the number of a man or of humanity. That number is 666, the number of the beast. A couple things I want to tell you. First of all, just as a point of sort of biblical insight, you do not ever find the Antichrist in the book of Revelation. Just so you know, there's a clear enemy, but we never see that word. Instead, what we see are these creatures who seem to be orchestrating something behind the scenes that have real intent. And one of them is for, to take on this particular mark that's now not just a mark to go into the market, but something bigger and broader. And there's, there's both sort of a political way to understand this, and there's a spiritual way to understand this. And they are, once again, kind of connected. So there was this, uh, I think even still to this day, there's this form of sort of numerology in the Hebrew tradition called Gematria, I think is how you say it. I've only ever seen it read. I've never heard anyone say it. And it's assigning number values to particular letters. And those letters then usually sort of add up to something, okay? Um, and that number then is connected to other numbers or has value on its own for some theological reason, Okay? I don't actually suggest this as a way to study the Bible, but actually it is helpful for us to see what other people, what sort of weight they put on this. Right? Like, we might not add up the names of Eric and realize that it really means awesome and believe it. <laughs> right? But it's helpful if you know that Eric's 
thinks his name adds up to awesome. And so it is here, okay? So what you need to know about Nero is if you take that Latin name and then you turn it to the Greek, and then from the Greek you turn it into the Hebrew, and then you add up its numbers, it equals, the name Nero equals 666. This is the enemy of God's people. This is a representative of God's people. And if you step into the way of the beast and you bow down and take the mark, then what you have done is you've stepped into the way of Nero. That is the political statement that's being made right here. Now, what's wrong with 666? Next slide, please. A couple things I think might also be helpful for you to know. What does the number seven represent in the Bible so far? Do you remember? Fullness, wholeness, something that is complete. And so the number 777, I guess like the slots, means fullness, wholeness, complete, victory. So the number Nero, in addition to being sort of a vile, evil person, is also a threefold failure. To take on that number, to take on the way of Nero, is, six mi- is seven minus one, seven minus one, seven minus one. It is the expression of complete, total imperfection. It is the way of sin and depravity, loss and judgment. When we take on the ways of the world, Revelation is telling us, is is we actually end up sort of taking away that is is sure and certain and utter defeat. That's how it's expressed. Six, six, six. Both dangerous and powerless. Both violent and you, church, book of life people, will have the victory. Stay the course. It might also be helpful for you to know that in Gematria, in that sort of number system, the name Jesus adds up to, and I'm not kidding, 888. It is perfection plus one. Perfection plus one. Perfection plus one. This is the thing that the book doesn't say, but certainly the people who first heard it would have known. And the subtext is, why would you choose the way of the dragon, the way of the beast of the sea, the way of the beast of the earth, and choose total and complete, utter destructive smallness when you already have perfection plus one times three? That's both sort of the political and the sort of the spiritual dynamic of what's happening here. These are things that we might miss because of the way 666 has been used over time. I can't help but see that number and think about an album cover with, of Iron Maidens, right? So as we come to an end here, I want to point out just a couple of very quick uh, things to sort of think about spiritually as we, um, as we um, come to our final hymn. Uh, the first thing is this. What we see here is that evil is systemic. It requires a different kind of an awareness from God's people. This is not just sort of uh, simple fox and hound hunting, but just sort of getting under the surface of it. 
creating systems and programs and expectations in the culture. The dragon and the beast lurk in a secret way. The battle is sometimes hidden. Sometimes it's even attractive or wise or seemingly wise, at least to our ticklish human ears. I just ask you, can you, in your chair right now, think of anything that you've read or thought or considered, some cultural attitude or idea that appears wise but is actually ungodly? Is there something you've thought, considered, heard, maybe one, even one of our politicians say, maybe one of our upcoming politicians in the election still to come, that sounds interesting on the face of it, but leads us to worship something other than the Lamb and His way. Evil is systemic. And it will take discernment. It will take wisdom, it says in verse 18, for us to see it and respond. Second, I want to just be really clear that dividing line is worship. And this calls us, like the original hearers, to think about worship in a different way. Worship is not simply and only what it is that we do here but it's also what we do when we are the church scattered. How are we giving our life away to something? There's a real pressure to worship things. In fact, we're, partially that's true is because we're wired for worship. We're wired to be in relationship with God. We can quickly find ourselves attracted to something that is not God. We can quickly find ourselves in a way of life or in a way of thinking or in a pattern of purchases or in a way of talking even with our friends that conforms to the culture and not to the way of Jesus. And the dividing line is worship. This is what the dragon wants. He wants you to bow to his false lamb. He wants you to think about your own life and worship something that's in it rather than the one that's who's at the center of the universe. The dividing line is worship. And the question, at least for them, is what do we do when even elemental activities are denied to us? This is not really the American story right now, but it's the growing story in Pakistan for our brothers and sisters in China, for those who are, are hiding in really small homes right now in Nigeria. What will we do, brothers and sisters, when even the most elemental things are denied to us? Do we take the mark? Or do we stay true to the Lamb? And then finally, Third point, just don't go small. Just don't go 666. Don't compromise. Don't give up on the way of the lamb. Don't choose sixes when you can choose eights. 
Don't give your life away to something that only has the appearance of resurrection when you have the power of the one who's truly resurrected. Choose the one who has died for you and is now risen and is on the throne of God. Not the one who's created his own and calls you to it. We're made for worship, friends. Go big. Here and out there. See, the choice that we're going to see as we move from chapter 13 to chapter 14 is we can, we can rally around the beast or we can rally around the throne. And what we see right here in Revelation 13 is just a reminder that evil is systemic. The dividing line for you is your heart of worship. What do you really worship? What do you really pursue? And as you think about that, don't go small. Go big. All in on Jesus, the slain Lamb of God. Father, we thank you for this chapter and for its challenge, and we pray, Lord, that you would help us as we continue to study Revelation. We pray, Lord, that you would um, help us to see this word as something that reveals something that's true still for us. Lord, I pray for the men and the women and the children in this room. Will you, by your Holy Spirit, will you shelter us? Will you give us wisdom and discernment to live wisely and courageously and truly? Lord, keep us from the mark of the beast. Pull us into the throne room of God where we worship the one who is always perfection plus one. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.